Before we begin, I want you to understand just how seriously I take my responsibility. The mere act of asking a question is the first step on the path to damnation. Heresy. The Imperium of Man was not built by those who questioned. It was built on the iron will of the Emperor, in the Orthodox, and above all, obedience. In our Imperium, we have a single institution that is pure enough to ask questions, and the Ordos of the Inquisition will now put you to the question. with the help of an expert we delve into a topic around 40k and today this is a really special episode for me because right at the beginning when I was setting everything up and setting everything in motion because there was nothing to show obviously I was leaning on people I already knew and so all the episodes up to this point have been from people who I'd spoken to um, and had pre-existing relationships with and they've all been fantastic episodes but this one is the first one where uh, somebody approached me, just sort of blind, sent me a message and said, you invited people to come on and talk. Here's a topic. Let's talk. Um, so it's a huge, hugely special moment. And I welcome um, Liam onto the podcast today. How are you doing, Liam? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me. No, as I say, it's it's wonderful because I'm just in the preparatory conversations and the you know, sort of the, the, the messages we've been having, I've already learned a lot about um, both uh, the topic we'll be discussing and about the topic with the, in which you are a specialist. So the episode title today is SAS, Decay and Deviance. And so, Liam, do you want to just give us a little, a little capsule of what this episode is going to be? I will try my best. So... Um... What I'm particularly interested in is um, critical disability theory, so disability representation. And um, I think the world of Warhammer is a really interesting space to have some of these conversations in, just because of there's, there's some specific things about how wargaming works, and there's some specific things about um, a grim, dark setting that mean that disabled representation is everywhere, and it's really interesting. So um, what I was hoping to do today was provide a bit of context, so give people some background on uh, disability theory, um, talk about some of the parts of the 40k universe that I think are particularly interesting, and then um, talk through how we apply disability theory to that. Liam, you're, you're clearly, you've got an academic background in this. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and um, and the background of, of, of what you do in your life um, and 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 then link then we'll sort of talk a bit about your hobby after that. Yeah, that's all right. Um, so I have worked in adult social care all my adult life. So um, I work alongside disabled people. 
um, and I've done that in various roles. Um, I currently work a lot with people who've got um, sensory impairments, so uh, I work with a lot of people from the deaf community um, and people with um, sight impairments. I'm disabled myself, so uh, that kind of sits at the core of um, my kind of work practice, but also some of the other things I'm interested in and the things that I think about a lot. Um, I've also got a bit of an academic interest, so um, I've previously done some research in relation to um, disability and I've just started, I'm just in the process of starting a PhD which is kind of grounded in critical disability theory, um, so that's kind of about critical disability theory and effect, so effect is the non-linguistic stuff that's going on in the situation, so um, when we meet and we talk about things, what are the other things that are going on and how that intersects with ideas of disability and race and class and gender. So, Okay, so using like the deaf example, then would we be talking about the normal visual cues? It's more um, what a situation feels like. I think that would be the way to describe it. So um, how things like um, power play out in a situation alongside the words that we're saying okay and so i mean when you're you were talking a little bit about wargaming and and why a setting is a sort of interesting thing and the first thing that sort of comes to mind is like in the hobby you're telling the story of, of your your army your faction and so that already gives a um you know somebody who has a disability the opportunity to just bring that experience into into their players is is that fair to say i think warham in particular is really good for this so the first thing is as you say the fact that we can create our own stories um and we can interpret the things that we're um the stories that we're telling differently makes it a really good space to have conversations about disability um we can destabilize the overarching narrative that's going on and think about that differently and we can be active participants in that storytelling um, I think it being a grim dark setting is also really good not, perhaps good's not the right word but like um, it's really useful because a lot of because of the way that um, ableism which we'll talk about in a bit um, constructs the ways that we think about the world utopian visions of the future tend to have very minimal kind of examples of disabled characters so disabilities does exist but it tends to be something which is um, there to be fixed or subsumed or is very much on the sidelines of the story in 40k because it is dystopian um, and because of the way that we think and we talk about disability there's a ton of disability representation there are disabled characters all over the places all over the place being used for different things I think the other thing is, so if we think about uh, disabled representation in film, one of the things that happens with disabled characters, it's there to make a point about what counts as normal and what the status quo is. And it's normally there to destabilise the status quo, but then that's resolved. So the disabled character either gets fixed or they get killed, they get yes. eradicated. Something happens, like the narrative arc involves... Um, the disabled character ceasing to exist in some way. Because 40k 
doesn't have a start and a finish. Right. There is much more space for like the longevity of those conversations to happen. Like the continual destabilization that happens in a like unending story um makes like 40k quite an interesting place for some of this stuff. So in um yeah, I mean in a conventional narrative where you have that closed end um and these sort of story these story threads are are um resolved then that that there's a temptation especially for people who aren't disabled themselves to use disability as a as a prop or as a tool or as a trope rather than just in an intrinsic part of being yeah and i think that happens in 40k as well like don't get me wrong i think that is a big part of disabled representation in 40k but um that lack of resolution means that there is space for different kinds of conversations and different ways of thinking about what characters can do in this universe. Sure. Um, we're actually already getting into the episode in quite a big way. I mean, as you, you're talking, this is very dense stuff. So let's wind it back a little bit and talk about what's your passion in, in 40k or, or war game in general? How did you come by it? Um, what, what's your sort of, what has been the thing which has, has kept you in it? Okay, so I, as I think probably a lot of people in England around my age who are in the hobby, um, got the second edition box set. So um, that kind of like classic iconic box set between um, Orcs and Space Marines. Um, I collected um, small Chaos Space Marine armies. So I had some Corn Berserkers and I had some um, Plague Marines, that kind of stuff. Um, but initially my big army was Wood Elves. I absolutely loved Wood Elves, partly because they had a really big dragon, and dragons are cool. Uh, well, at least they're cool when you're ten, aren't they? Um, I, I thought, hey, I'm I'm forty six. They're still cool now. They're still <laughs> okay, cool, cool now. Cool. Well, the thing that wasn't cool about them was um, they were made out of metal. Um, and oh my was... god, hang on, you, I I think I think that you were you were the this means you were the person who I who I envied massively because i remember seeing that 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 dragon model god you could yeah <laughs> that was huge it and was, heavy and impossible right? it was um and it had these big um f off metal metal wings that just wouldn't stay in place so my one though it looked beautiful had like um piles and piles of knobbly super glue which had built up on itself around the joints as i'd spent hours trying to stop it fall to pieces yeah yeah i'm sure that there's a lot about people out there who can empathize with that um it's it's one of those funny things that i see people online saying oh i remember the golden days of metal models and i i don't get that at all plastic is so much better uh, yeah they, i i just remember sitting there thinking super glue doesn't work <laughs> i'm just it feels like i'm just holding two heavy bits of lead together with uh water like this is not a fun experience but it was a cool model it was a very cool model and i can imagine 10 year old you was was absolutely thrilled by and that. eagles that was the other one um so there was um a wood elf, wood elf eagles. eagles so they were that kind of like really classic Lord of the Rings come in and save everyone at the end eagles. But they were also big chunks of metal on the top of small little plastic stands. <laughs> I'm sure that went well. Uh, you have to coat that in about seven coats of varnish to uh, to stop it chipping. Um, and when um, 
Honestly, what else were your favourite? Have you been tempted by the kind of like the Sylvaneth um, AOS interpretation of, of, of that? Or is um, that not your... Not your at moments, um, but my big thing these days is Nurgle. So I have a Maggot King of Nurgle army. Um, so I've got kind of a Demon army and also a Mortal's army. They're just really beautiful and they're really easy to paint. <laughs> like you can get lots of really good effects, really um, in quite an enjoyable way. Like you don't have to. I sometimes find when I'm painting um, like loyalist space marines, it ends up feeling a little bit like painting by numbers. It's very much I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to build up my layer like this. Whereas with Nurgle, you've got a bit more freedom to just practically just pour paint all over them and wash it around with water and um, start to find interesting patterns and colours. So, yeah, got that. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I think the first model I remember seeing of yours was um, you've got these beautiful um, nurglings and great unclean one where, I mean, a lot of a lot of the time you see nurgle, it's that very grimy. You've got the browns and you've got the greens and you've got the agrax, you know, and it that looks really good. But you've taken this really interesting of almost like an oil slick where you've got all of these different colours and it's really vibrant and interesting. And I haven't seen that take before. And I think it looks absolutely fabulous. Um, do you have a, an Instagram or a, any, any sort of social media you like to see people um, on or anything like that? I've got two Instagrams. So oh, okay. I've got um, Chaos Undecided, which is where I post... Um, my 40k and my age of sigma models i've also got liam underscore p underscore t which is where i post my art because i'm i do painting as well so uh, fantastic well hopefully you'll get a few people picking that up as i say the um the great unclean one and stuff are just really fantastic really eye-catching lovely Thank work you very much. no worries um so is that where you're at at the moment then this is mainly uh, mainly nurgle and demons then yeah, so um, I've got I've got Maggot King of Nurgle, but then I've also got Death Guard. So I've got um, a fairly big army of Death Guard. And then a few bits and pieces that kind of like catch my eye along the way. So I've got um, the new Chaos Knight. I've got um, I've got a couple of little kill teams. So I've got an Ooh, orc. Hang on, is, it, is that the new Chaos Knight with the big birds on top? Yes. Is, is and that, oh, the what a model that is. Squiggly little, um, like the three tentacle claws. Yes, which is um, that was my first kind of um, uh, sort of Her Horace Heresy introduction was with the old Space Marine and and Adeptus Titanicus. I remember the um, they had uh, like the Chaos Marine add-ons. You had a really cool thing, and that seems to me to be a real callback. Yeah, it's to that. great, isn't it? So, uh, and what I'm doing with that is I'm kind of like painting it. I saw Dana Howell do these really beautiful Space Marines that were in like an American shopping mall theme. So it was like blues and turquoises as a base and then pink as the highlight colour. So I'm doing my um, Chaos Knight in that theme at the moment with like bits of rust as well. But yeah, it's looking, I'm quite liking it at the moment. It's quite nice to have as a point of contrast. So you've got like oil slicks on one side and then this like striking blue and pink knight on the other. Fantastic. Okay, great. So let's get into the meat of the episode. And I think as the listeners will already have heard, there's a lot of meat here. Um, so yeah, Liam, do you want to launch us into the topic then? Yeah, so um, 
I guess a few of the bits and pieces that are kind of relevant about my kind of interest in the hobby. Um, I tend to be quite a visual person, um, so a lot of my kind of memories and thoughts and feelings about 40k link back to those 90s illustrations. So um, that one of the Imperator Titan against the Gargant, those kind of like real like standout strong visually anchoring images. I think that's quite important when we start to think about disability representation because it's such a visual thing. Um, I uh, also, so one of the ways that I've kind of like um, got back into the law um, is through audiobooks and I just wanted to do a bit of a shout out to audiobooks. So as someone who, um, I'm quite good at understanding things but I hate reading. Reading is literally like, um, it's not a thing that I am good at. Um, so I just consume hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of audiobooks. Um, if you've not listened to it, Rites of Passage is a really good one, I would recommend. That's Mike Brooks, and we'll talk a little bit about him later because he's great. Um, I would avoid um, Warhawk, which is one of the Horus Heresy books, just because the White Scar accents are pretty sketchy. Um, ah, that's a real shame, because I think that's the Chris Wright book, and Chris Wright is one of my favourite authors. I mean, I think his... It's, it's a great story. It's a great story, but it's just... Yeah, it's a little bit difficult. And the infinite and the divine, similarly, the Necron accents are all a little bit, a little bit sketchy. But again, it's a really good book. Like narratively, it's great oh, in terms yeah. of like the that long story, like really making forty k feel like it's taking millennia. And into an extent that that story is also uh, touching on some um, disability representation. I don't know if you've listened to the Necron episode, but um, Rob and I discussed Infinite and Divine and the Twice Dead King books, and both of them certainly there's an aspect of you know kind of some of the some of the t topics which you're going to be delving into. And I mean, yeah, that's a chat. I loved the Infinite and the Divine as a book for sure. It was absolutely fantastic. So those two, I would recommend reading. The rest, yep. I think, go for audiobooks if you can. Yep. No worries at all. So, um, just to kind of like set the scene a bit then, I'm going to do a bit of a potted history of um, disability. So this is going to be very much um, from my perspective, and uh, my perspective is informed um, by my own experiences of disability, um, both personally and professionally. I think it's important to acknowledge that it's very much a, like, a Western-focused understanding of the history of disability. Um, I think that is probably justifiable here because this is not a 10-hour lecture series on the history of disability and my experience of disability and the ways disability is thought about in, by the, the writers and the producers of content for Warhammer 40,000 is very much grounded in the kind of this history that I'm going to kind of like touch on here. The way that disability was understood historically happened through something which is known as the charity model. So the charity model is a religious understanding of what disability is and links disability explicitly with sin. So disability there is a punishment from God. Um, and the responses to disability 
were arms and prayer. So it was religious intervention um, to atone for or to communicate with God around sin. That started to shift and the medical model started to emerge and starts to understand disability in terms of disease, trauma and genetics. So something about a person that makes them different. But you also start to have conversations about um, like populations as a whole. So like the idea of normal only appears in the um, OED in like the mid 19th century. The thing that then starts to build on that is um, the kind of the eugenicist turn. So not only what normal is, but how do we improve populations? And that very much um, understands disability as something that w which needs to be responded to through treatment or care or eradication. Or at its kind of dark end, literally being like castrated or kind of, you know, not allowed to breed. And, and the history of disability is the history of like coercive control of disabled people and disabled bodies um, over the last few hundred years, mainly by the state and before that by the church. In, right. and, and a lot of that stuff still exists. A lot of those ways of us thinking and talking about disability haven't gone. Like, we still think of it as this, like, intrinsic thing within a person which is needs to be fixed and resolved. And we see that when we start to have these conversations about how disability is portrayed and used in media. Yeah, so, so in a British context, we have the Mental Deficiency Act, uh, 1913. So it comes up with four categories, the idiot, the imbecile, uh, feeble-minded, and the morally defective. The last of what were referred to as long-stay hospitals, but were previously called asylums, closed in 2007. So it, it's not an ancient history, this. Um, in the 1970s, in England, the social model was developed. It was one of the first big theoretical understandings of disability that came from disabled people, really informed by Marxism more than anything else. And what they argued was that um, people have impairments, so we have differences in the ability, in our function and how we interact in the world. But disability is um, something which is situated in the world. So disability is... Um, oppression and segregation and it is the social political cultural barriers that disabled people face the the kind of classic example would be if all buildings were level access and had ramps it wouldn't matter whether you were a wheelchair user or not because that building would be accessible where we are now is kind of i i'm particularly interested in something which is called critical disability theory a bit of a shift away from thinking about what it means to be disabled to one which thinks about um, what are these ideas of normal against which disabled disability is being understood and defined. Um, and this is where the idea of ableism emerges. And this will be really important for some of our kind of like later conversations about the Imperium and how it understands disability. So um, I quite like Fiona Kamari Campbell's definition. I think it's fairly straightforward. She defines ableism as um, a network of beliefs, processes and practices that produce a particular kind of self and body, the corporeal standard, that is projected as perfect, species-typical and therefore essential and fully human. Um, how do we critically engage with these ideas of normal, these fictional ideas of normal that are rooted in the eugenics of the, the 19th century? The person that we as a society place value on, and that is a person who is a white, cis, heterosexual, able-bodied man who has agency and can control themselves and can control the world around them. 
and I think will be, I mean, just you're talking about that as a sort of like an, an archetype form. And I think you could, anyone looking at 40K, you know, there's a very, very clear image of yeah. an ultramarine standing there with a bolter, which I think you can sort of see maps onto this kind of ableist idea. Um, you've got some some quotes um, you wanted to read out. So from Libra Creotica, for what is the immediate response of normal people when confronted with the hideous deformities of Nurgle's plagues? All too often they recoil in fear and disgust, and this reaction is increased tenfold when confronted with one of the impossibly diseased servants of the plague god, or worse, one of these foul deities' demons. That's Libra Chaotica. And then uh, from the Emperor of Mankind, which is, I'm sure most people will recognise this, which is, They shall be my finest warriors, these men who give of themselves to me. Like clay I shall mould them in, in the furnace of war I shall forge them. They shall be of iron will and steely sinew. In great armour I shall clad them with the mightiest weapons, shall they be armed. They will be untouched by plague or disease. No sickness shall blight them. They shall have such tactics, strategies and machines that no foe will best them in battle. They are my bulwark against the terror. They are the defenders of humanity. They are my space marines, and they shall know no fear. And finally, from Kamari Campbell, uh, which is an academic text who uh, 40k readers will probably not know so well. It's, from the moment a child is born, she, he emerges into a world where she, he receives messages that to be disabled is to be less than, a world where disability may be tolerated, but in the final instance is inherently negative. Um, so, yeah, so that's really three quotes which you think give a really, really good overview of where 40k fits in and where particularly Nurgle operates as both a sort of a, uh, an undermining and a reinforcement of some of those tropes. So let's get into this then and how, how disability theory works within 40k and, and Nurgle. So shall we go through a bit of um, Nurgle lore? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously there are no goodies in 40k, but I, I do feel like I sometimes end up talking as if Nurgle is a goodie, but I don't think it is. I think it's complicated. <laughs> but for the purposes of this, let's talk about... We're talking about the positive... Um, we're talking about the positive representation in Nurgle, so don't worry about it. We get it. You're not actually a plague acolyte. Well, you say that, but you have not seen... Well, uh, to my knowledge. Yeah, you've to my knowledge, not right? seen my bedroom. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, Nurgle is the third of the four Chaos Gods. Um, so the Chaos Gods um, exist in the Warp. So the Warp is a dimension within which emotion and psychic energy gets made manifest. So it's like the thoughts and feelings of sentient and psychically sensitive beings uh, coming into existence. Um, I guess for people who aren't, particularly familiar with 40k i guess most of you will be but um it's also the way through which um some species travel faster than the speed of light because why not take a shortcut through a hell dimension like that is obviously the most practical way of traveling um nurgle is referred to as um grandfather um or papa nurgle um and so a few more quotes from chaotic Chaotica Libra, Libra Chaotica. 
Nurgle is the supreme god of decay, the fountain and architect of all rot, be it physical, moral, ideological, economic or political. It is said that when Nurgle manifests himself to his servants, he is seen as a body wracked with all manner of diseases and corruption. It appears that Nurgle's entire purpose is to promote endless suffering and misery throughout all the mortal realms. Yet conversely to this, I have heard tell that Nurgle is supposedly deeply caring towards his mortal and demonic servants, and is full of unexpected humour. So this is very much a theme when we talk about Nurgle. This, this idea of um, of Papa Nurgle, of this caring being engaged with what humans are and what our foibles are and what our lives are like. Um, some of the other laws quite interesting in terms of um, unpicking actually what Nurgle is and what the root of Nurgle is. Um, because if you think of the warp as a space within which emotions are at large and manifest, then your initial thought would be, how does Nurgle fit into that? So you can understand um, Selenesh, you can understand Corn in terms of um, them being like embodiments of psychic emotion. But how does uh, uh, the physical reality of death and decay exist as... Um, as an emotional and like a, a psychic being. So um, some of the law suggests that what Nurgle is then is it's our fear of death, it's our fear of decay, and then it's our acceptance of them. So if we're thinking about what Nurgle is then, um, and if the warp is this space within which um, psychic and emotional energy is manifest, that doesn't make sense on your first reading, does it? Because um, death and decay and disability are physical processes. They're things that exist in the world. So what the law suggests is that what Nurgle is, is um, our, uh, our response to those processes. So it's our fear of death, it's our fear of decay, and then it's our acceptance and our understanding of death and decay. Um, Oh, that's a really interesting theory. I've heard, and, and certainly within law, it's suggested that the chaos gods sort of embody their response. So Nurgle is, as the disease, is twinned with uh, like an, an Eldar god like Isha, who's the god of life. And so it's like the flip side of creation and life exploding in, and this is kind of the response to that. And similarly, uh, Korn being as the sort of god of death and, uh, and of conflict almost is the opposite of um, like sort of the, 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 creative, the creative conflict. So he's the destructive conflict. And so you see sort of similar arguments um, of sort of representations in that the whole time. Um, it's, it's also worth mentioning that Nurgle um, is, is a word which is directly from myth. It's spelt differently, um, but the Mesopotamian god of um, death, war and destruction is Nergal. Um, and so it's often um, associated with like sort of the destruction of crops and stuff. So it, it may be that that's quite likely that that sort of god of antiquity was just involved in, in the initial construction of Nurgle um but yeah no really interesting that this you're talking about this is the response yeah and it, and so the quotes that kind of that I get that from are um amongst those of us who are permitted to theorize about the denizens of the ether 
the common conception of this vile god is that he is the personified manifestation of disease and decay. The case cannot be as simple as that, for unlike the pleasure and rage that can be seen to form the cause of slanesh and corn, respectively, decay is a physical and measurable process that has an existence all of its own, outside of the perceptions of intelligent beings. Decay is not, after all, just an emotion or a thought, and should not therefore have a direct influence over the ether. If decay does not require mortals to perceive it for it to be real, how then can a chaos god, being a personified manifestation of the thoughts and emotions of mortals, come to be the embodiment of the physical realities of disease and decay? At some point in our lives, we will all come to realise that there are things in the, this world beyond our ability to control, things that we are powerless to resist or change. So I, I thought that was a really interesting, like... Um, starting point to think about what we're talking about here um one of the things that will probably become apparent and will be apparent to anybody is that the word disability isn't really used so what we have is we have um death and decay and we have lots of visual tropes around disability but i think understandably games workshop well not understandably but games workshop isn't critically engaging with the representation that it's doing and as such doesn't use the word disability it uses euphemisms to make the same point um just going back to that um that quote there so this is sort of engaging with this this idea of human fears then isn't it um so although the word disability isn't used we are in a sort of situation where nurgle kind of represents this fear of yeah, of of becoming disabled and of becoming sick. Um, like, if you're looking at it from the Empyrean perspective, which this quote is is largely, and we'll get into this idea of, of Nurgle as the protagonist, but as the antagonist, um, so the, 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 the battle which we're fighting is this, it's this creeping horror, which is, you know, sort of happens in most of the, um, most of the literature which we're seeing or the most of the books and stories is where you have able-bodied combatants who are suddenly laid low and so you have these plagues visited on civilizations which are destructive and stuff like that right so what we then have is this idea of nurgle as a uh, a friendly and jovial character that cares about people but the view from the imperium that we see is one of um supposedly our fear of uh, decay, our fear of disability, writ large in these physical forms. Um, that, that, that is something that will come up when we start to think about the Death Guard. But before we do that, I'll just kind of run through the, de the demons to give you a bit of an overview. So, the Great Unclean One, or as we call him in our house, the Great Uncle Ian, because my wife misheard what he was called, um, is um, almost like an avatar of Nurgle. So representing a part of Nurgle themselves. Um, they are friendly and jovial in general. Um, there's one or two in the lore who are grumpy, but in general they are they're like friendly characters who care about the people around them. Yeah, and I think the, um, the first time I saw a great unclean one was on the, um, the Realm of Chaos book, where you've got this vast corpulent but smiling kind of figure surrounded by the sea of little nurglings and you've got these kind of like these sickly colors you know the greens and the browns and the kind of the purples of sort of suggesting 
um, yeah, kind of unhealthiness and the yellow light uh, coming through. But it's um, but that's a very, I think that's a very common image of what Nurgle Nurgle itself is. But that's also the great unclean one. Yeah, so we have um, the the kind of like the visual representation of the Great Unclean One as this, the Great Uncle Ian. See, even when I say it, I think it's because I mumble my words. It sounds like Great Uncle Ian, and my wife does have an Uncle Ian. Um, he's great. He's great in some ways. Um, but the the Great Unclean One as this like large, jovial, but also. Um, yeah, these kind of things that are, are there, smiling, but um, intestines falling out and spots and boils and also fatness. I think fatness is a big thing in Nurgle. Um, and when we go on to kind of critically engaging with some of this stuff, I think there are some really interesting commonalities between how disability is used and how fatness is used. And I'm using fat there in a kind of body positive reclaimed way as a fat person myself. I think... Um, there are there's a destabilizing uncomfortableness that people feel around disability and fatness both of which we see represented in nurgle in really interesting ways um so the great and clean ones in general are friendly and jovial and um yeah these these big greater demons um the other kind of core demons are the beasts of nurgle who are like giant puppy dogs who run around bouncing upon people. And, and they're sort of um, big slugs, basically. Slugs with kind of extra bits bolted on um, and stuff. And I think there's a really kind of... They're this sort of puppy-like enthusiasm. But then at the end of their life cycle, certainly in, in I think, Age of Sigmar, they do this... They Because they are... Everything they've bound up with and tried to play with ends up dying and becoming less fun... And so the end stage is this kind of um, bitter um, one. And I think that's where one of the um, Death Guard kind of skimming, uh, buzzing insect insectoid ones. They're the sort of the... the so in, in a sense, the beasts of Nurgle are the, are the larval state of, of those insects. Yeah, but I guess just on that point, the other trope that we get a lot in um, Nurgle is that of insects. Um, is that of like maggots and flies and um, the beasts of Nurgle definitely play into that this this um, like correlation between um, disabled bodies and non-human creatures in the 40k universe is is really common um, plague bearers are um, zombies I think you could probably describe them as playing into a lot of the kind of like standard zombie tropes sitting alongside pox walkers um, and then we've got Nurglings who are um, sassy and probably I would consider the real good guys in the 40k universe. Um, they are joyful and good fun to paint and um, slightly inappropriate, but in a good way. Um, they're formed inside Great Unclean Ones, so again, they are like small avatars. Of yeah, they're just God. like, they're, they're mini-me's of so. the Great Unclean Ones in a lot of ways, aren't they? And then, yeah, it's like um, Russian dolls with Nurgle and then Great Unclean One and then Nurglings all inside. Yeah, I mean, the plague bearers have um, often a job of um, of like keeping count and keeping records um, of everything, and so they're a little bit less uh, on the fun side. Um, they're they're a bit more di uh, 
doer and we'll um we'll get onto that i think that sort of fits with that sort of zombie um aspect as well hmm. the other big part of nurgle is the death guard so um the death guard are um were originally the dusk raiders um so they were the emperor's red right hands um their primarch mortarion um, landed on Barbarus, and uh, Barbarus as a planet was um, ruled over by a group of Xenos psychers referred to as the Overlords, um, and then humans who lived at the top of basically fortresses on top of mountains surrounded by poisonous gas. Um, and then humans were almost like cattle um, living in the bottom of the valleys and there to be exploited and hunted. Um, the story of Martarian is one of him realising that he was one of the humans, um, leading a rebellion, trying to kill his dad, failing to do it. The Emperor swoops in and saves him, and he gets fairly pissed off about it. That would be the, the initial story of Martarian if I was going to fly through it. How the Death Guard go over to Nurgle is quite interesting. So in The Buried Dagger, which is the final book of the Horus Heresy, which covers covers that kind of like background of Mortarion living on Barbarus, what it also talks through is the story of the Legion going over to Nurgle. So the story as it's laid out there is that Talos, Kalos Typhon, who is the first captain of the Death Guard, um, basically gets them stranded in the warp on purpose um, by playing off Mortarion's hatred of psychers kills all the navigators and then when they're stuck in the warp um the destroyer plague um, starts to infect all the death guard and mortarian seemingly does a deal with nurgle in order to stop his legion from dying that's the story as it's outlined in the buried dagger and I think that that's the tr very much the traditional narrative um, that most people would understand for sure. Yeah, and like I think there's a lot of um, stuff in there that, um, yeah, plays into this idea of uh, not wanting the gift and not wanting to to um, go over to Nurgle and not and like stoically having to deal with what was in front of you. I think that is the. That perhaps the difference in tone that we have with Death Guard when we're comparing it to the Nurgle Demons. So we think of the Great Unclean One as this big jovial character there to spread its gifts, whereas the Death Guard are much more um, the stoical characters who are going to continue with these gifts and take advantage of them um, as they as they emerge. In Warhawk, um, the story gets tweaked slightly. So, um, Mortarian talking. So, Warhawk is one of the Siege of Terror novels, and um, it's uh, it's kind of during the Siege of Terror. We have a character called Kaifa Morag, who is one of the Death Guard, who's talking to Mortarian. And Mortarian says, um, Let me help you out, Kaifa, Mortarian said. You've heard whispers that Typhus is the true master here. You have heard that he is the one who forced the transition to our current form, that he tricked me, that he tricked all of us, pulled the veil over our eyes and still runs things. Much as he likes, is that right? I will say only this. Nothing happened on the Terminus Est. Nothing that happened on the Terminus Est was an accident. I loved you all too much. That was the only error I would admit. Kalos was irrelevant, an instrument, one the god was pleased to use. And then, as the story develops, a demon called the Remnant 
um, basically retells the the transition of the Death Guard over to Nurgle as um, as a as uh, Mortarian intentionally choosing to do it, and it being a thing that um, he wanted to do, but he needed the actions of uh, uh, Typhus to um, push over the line because of his hesitancy around the use of psychers, but actually was something that fundamentally he wanted. He wanted the power power that would um, then be bestowed on the Death Guard as a result of the transition. Sure. I mean, and as always in 40k, it's like you've got to have a look at who the um, who who is telling the story because you know it's that everything is everything is canon, not everything is true, uh, and certainly in these stories, this is could be. Could be true for sure, um, but could also be interpreted as Mortarian exerting propaganda to try and persuade people that he's actually been in control the whole time. Because, and a lot of the story of Mortarian is about him not having agency, and so you know his the, the germination of his hatred of the Emperor is the you know the Emperor took him away and and for not killing his father, and then he tries to kill his father again. His emperor this time and fails again he's um he hates psychers and then becomes one there's a sort of there's the a, a consistent theme of him not actually being able to achieve the things he wants to do so it would be very understandable in that situation if he then tries to recast what happened as a conscious choice of himself um i don't have a point of view on which one of these is true but it's it's a really interesting recouching of it and i hadn't heard that story have not read warhawk so that's really fascinating and, and and what's quite nice is that they are both true in some way aren't they like that's the kind of the way that it works we can play around and and that's what makes warhammer a really interesting space to have these conversations because there isn't just a single story that says this is what's going on and this is why this is the motivation behind these characters um we have space to interpret things and not trust who we don't want to trust and take forward the stories that we want to take forward and then build on them and do interesting and things. certainly as you know you could you could see how some how if you are imposing this theme of disability being something inflicted on you then you would want to as a you know kind of as a disabled person reclaiming that you know, want to want to play Mortarian in that right, and I think in that light rather, I think that's a really interesting point of view, and it and it it's 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 really nice actually. I think that that leaves leaves open those options for both both ways of playing him, both ways of interpreting him um, to exist. Um, so yeah, I think that's that again telling the stories of your dudes, but the the authors themselves being aware of recouching it and making them as protagonists rather than just victims as well so um in terms of disability representation then we've kind of like given a bit of context and explanation about the history of disability and how we understand disability and the kind of the two ideas that we've got going forward are um what function is disability playing in the stories that we're telling but also um how that relates to ideas of ableism. So how that relates to this idea of what counts as a valuable person with something to say. The literature around wargaming, um, the academic literature, there's bits and pieces, but there's not much. 
but what there is quite a lot of is um, there's a lot of there's a lot there's been a lot of conversations about um, disability representation in other media. I'll mainly be drawing on film, um, just because it's such a visual medium. I think it shares a lot in terms of how it uses disability and the kind of the narrative tricks that it uses disability for that cross over with um wargaming and with 40k in particular so with the um the stuff actually about wargaming what it's what what you seem to be saying is it's it's more about the the out of game experience um so the ability of disabled people to access tournaments to access games and to to sort of engage in the hobby rather than actual kind of discourse within the story itself is that right yeah i think that's that's fair um there are bits and pieces about uh the discourse but the majority of it is around like accessibility and what that looks like and what that how that works um there are similar conversations happening over in things like D D. so um i'm sure most people will be aware of combat wheelchair and uh uh, some of the interesting conversations that are happening over there. I think that's probably more uh, linked to some of the stuff that I'm talking about than the kind of the broader conversations around accessibility. So there are people thinking about these things and doing these things. Um, the the kind of the conversations though in relation to disability aren't that well developed uh, in terms of how we critically engage with it. Um, so if we think then about how disability is used in film. Um, it's always there to do something, and the thing that it's normally there to do is, um, it's normally there as a either a, a kind of characterization tool or a metaphorical device. Um, we end up with loads of disability representation in films. So if you think about it compared to say um, gender identity or race. Um, Gender identity tends to be kind of marginalised in film discourse with its like non-representation. So the non-existence of um, characters who have um, non-heteronormative and non-cisnormative relationships to their gender and their sexuality. Disability is all over the place. Disability is everywhere. We have... um, zombies we have hannibal lecter we have freddy krueger we have every well like most possessed characters in films so joey just going back to hannibal lecter there i i wasn't kind of i I wouldn't think of him as a representation of disability what what in what sense is that true one of the things so the majority of disability representation is disability representation about disabled people's physical bodies so what they look like and how they're used to communicate things to people visually but there is also a strong tradition of madness and insanity as as like things to be feared things to um uh, things that are threats to what is normal and i think hannibal lecter really plays into a lot of those ideas and tropes like disability isn't just freddy krueger it's also um supervillains it's also the insane it's the riddler it's 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 broad in terms of its understanding the main two ways in which um 
disability then gets used. So it's always there to serve a function. Um, two of the big functions are as a shorthand for deviance, which we've kind of already touched on. So Freddy Krueger would be the, the kind of like a really good example of that, um, where uh, his physical appearance is seen as a shorthand to the audience to let them know that this character is bad, like this character is evil, and we can see that in the way that they look. And um, that happens in monster horror all over the place. And it has its roots back in the, um, like, notions of disability and uh, sin that that kind of are the history of uh, like disabled representation. The other way that disability often gets used is as a uh, shorthand for innocence. So disabled characters as um, pure and innocent and childlike and vulnerable. Um, they are characterised as kind of like morally superior in some way because they don't have the agency that a normal person would have. Um, so across both of those examples, um, disability is something which is there to either like contrast or reinforce the status quo. So the disabled character isn't something that can have agency, can't be a full human. It is there to make a point about the world around. Um, a, the world around the disabled person and its function whether as um, uh, a person of like purity and innocence to contrast against the, the hostile world or as like a deviant evil thing um, is always there in contrast to the protagonist who is the able-bodied uh, normally cis normally white heterosexual man so we're sort of talking like the uh, sort of to, to go back to like the critical race theory element is like the black best friend or something like that. So the um, the maid figure in in um, Gone with the Wind, where the, their, their their role is to provide some kind of focus for the for the the lead character rather than being telling their own story. Yeah, yeah. they're a tool. They're a tool that um, uh, fits a narrative purpose rather than being a character. Sure. Quite often. Um, so, so just one one other trope um hit me while you were talking about those two and i'm not quite sure where it fits is to um ask about where does something like the holy fool um fit into this narrative where you've got the like the jester who is who, who is um you know, the one who can speak truth to power or or is it has insight but isn't necessarily like it, it's not it's not intellectual insight. It's kind of um, it's they will speak truth because they perceive it, but but not in a controlled sense. So, so I, I would I would probably understand that in terms of conversations around innocence and purity, like the out of the mouths of children. Oh, okay, with like Emperor's new Emperor's new clothes type thing. No, so um, is it out of the mouths of babes? Is that the phrase? Uh, I think so. So yeah. like the idea of um, like disabled people being innocent and pure and um, almost childlike in their ability to get to the truth. I think like ideas around fools really play into that more than anything else. There are other ways that the disability is used and um, we can start to touch on some of those, but those are like two like big overarching ones. And in both of those cases, um, disability's role is fundamentally to say something about what counts as a valuable person and what a normal person is. So if we think back to those quotes that we started with, we had the one which was from Nurgle, which um, was very much about 
um, a conversation about disability as an explicit um, like shorthand for deviant, something to be like to recoil from. But the other one is the one from the Emperor, and um, we can kind of see in that uh, just as much um, a conversation about what disability is. And um... and I hadn't before this before this conversation tweaked that untouched by plague or disease, no sickness shall blight them was such, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost the first, it's before they talk about their ability in war. So it's like saying they're, it begins by saying that they shall be shaped in this, in this sense. And then the next thing, which you would have thought the most important thing about a space marine was the way they fight. But actually it's like, look at them, look at the sculpting form of them and they won't be affected by diseases. And it's only then that they will be fearless and that they will be good in strategy and tactics and equipment. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, that's that's a really interesting point that the first thing after their, after their sort of description is, is it's right there. Um, the disease and, and that kind of that language about not being corrupted in that in that way. These big, powerful white men who are going to protect everybody. Like, I know that's not the case for all of Space Marines, but that's very much the the like archetype when you think of Rabute Gilliman like we have it, it's almost like ableism writ large um one of the things that I quite like is um how like the ableist like paradigm of what counts as a valuable person is always understood as a fiction against which we're all defined and understood that links into these historic notions of eugenics um and then we have this fictional superhero who's like this giant, like, couldn't be more in your face example of what we're talking about here. Um, I think one of the things that I, um, so I've been doing a fair amount of reading around like current law and also historic law. And um, I think that quote contrasts really well with some of the really old law around um, failed space marines. So the failed initiation of space marines. So this is from um, the White Dwarf Compendium. So the 1989 one, which I think is the like one of the earliest examples that explains um, what the gene seeds are. And it's the first um, example I could find that has the bit of the law about how um, all space marines are boys. Like it's, it's that. Um, which is still in there, isn't it? Whereas this bit's been taken out. So in the original law, it says, if an implant fails to develop properly, it is likely that a Marine's metabolism will become badly out of synchronization. He may fall into a catatonic state or suffer bouts of hyperactivity. In either event, he will probably die. Those unfortunates that do not die almost invariably suffer mental damage, degenerating into homicidal maniacs or gibbering idiots. However, when a character is... Uh, when a chapter is at full strength, these misfits may be put out of their misery. If the chapter is short of marines, they are often allowed to live, and may be placed within their own special units. Those who display uncontrollably psychotic, um, psychotic tendencies can be recruited into suicide assault squads or as suicide bombers. Some chapters deliberately foster such creatures, even going so far as to implant deformed zygotes into some initiates. This is very dangerous, and the practice is discouraged by imperial edict. Um, but old traditions die hard. So if we compare that to the, the idea of the space marine that we, we have here, I think... Um, 
it, it just becomes really obvious um, how the how the Imperium views and understands what disability is. Um, I think as an interesting side note, um, the fact that that's not in the law anymore says something about the fact that um, uh, how Games Workshop is prepared to step away from something like that um, and how it critically engages with... Um, how, how it no longer has that as part of the law, but it continues to have things like all Space Marines being boys. I think... Well, I mean, they do... In some of the heresy stuff, you do have... Korax um, tries to create, you know, new supermarines and it essentially creates beasts. There's some mutated beasts and there's a, there's a tremendous amount of shame in the way he kind of engage, engages with them, but it's also he utilizes their strengths because they're bigger stronger faster i think they're called raptors um it's been a while since i read that but but that was so so there, there are the writers still have elements of that they still draw that it's not totally gone away but it's obviously not part of the core law so yeah it is some bits of it are still there in the law aren't there so we've got the wolfen yeah um we've got the blood angels um drinking blood we have like what we tend to have is things about mutations in zygots what we don't have is um suicide bombers who are described as gibbering idiots yes <laughs> yes yes and, and interestingly and one of the things which if we're talking about space marines as this sort of ableist paradigm is that they are taken as pre-teens um i think this is again it's one of those things which it's kind of fundamental to the way space marines are but i don't think gw has worked out a way of properly engaging with it because it's fundamentally these are psycho indoctrinated chemically castrated child soldiers and that's not a heroic narrative and so i'm just wondering how that the, the fact that space marines are both more than and less than human and that's that their sort of ability to live a full human life is intensely truncated and 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 not really allowed and and that's something which i'm wondering what sort of comment you'd have about that well that's kind of the the thing about ableism isn't it like it is a a reductive fiction that doesn't take account of the complexity and nuance of what it is to be a person because it's really reductive in terms of how it understands what it is to be a person um but that fiction is not something which is actually desirable when we look into it and we actually like unpick what's going on there um so they are the things that we say we value and the things that we say are natural um but the reality is we have a really like limited understanding of what counts as being a person, which is um, linked, tied really closely to like capitalist notions of value and production. And um, I think the example of the Space Marine is that played out in a slightly exaggerated way. Like you wouldn't want to be a Space Marine, would you? And I, I wouldn't want to live in a world where we were all um, we were all fully human in the way that um, we think we would want humans to be. Okay, that's that's really really interesting, and it's it's 
I mean, I guess as with all critiques, there's a question of how much intent there is. I and mean, obviously GWR, they've got that tension of hero marines who are the poster boys, but also are the horrific kind of manifestation of this 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 disgusting state of the Imperium, which has no no goodies in it, and has you know an Inquisition, and has um, um, you know a commissariat and things like that, you know, and has you know, arbitrary executions of entire worlds just based on one guy's say so. Um, so yeah, it's interesting hearing this sort of this uh, through the through the lens of critical disability theory of how that how that works, and I wonder how much the internal conversations in GW are going to be about this stuff. Because, as you say, by taking those things out, stepping back from some of those things, there's definite, there are shifts and changes which have been going on over the years. Um, but it's hard to hard to know what happens behind closed doors. And um, in some ways, Sodom, like we can make these we can have these conversations can't we that's the thing that makes this really interesting like it's not the case that just because gw expects stories to be told in a certain way or has a certain slant on the things that it's trying to say that we could never know really like i i, I would probably assume that there is not that many active conversations about critical about disability representation in 40k happening at gw um but certainly individual authors have engaged with that. And I think that's probably a good segue into some of the books and, and topics you were talking about before. So should we start with probably the most famous and obvious one in, in the books is um, Ravana. Um, so for those who haven't read Ravana, um, it's part of the Inquisition series by Dan Abnett. And Ravana is an inquisitor who was hideously burned and um in in one of the earlier um eisenhorn books um and is a powerful psyker and then goes on to have his own book series so yeah over to you liam yeah so um and i think i probably need to like um start this by saying um i'm not someone who has significant burns i'm not someone who um, is a wheelchair user and I think if I was um, I think the opinions of disabled people who have had burns and are wheelchair users are probably more important than my view of Ravana um, than mine if that makes sense as a sentence yeah of course um, yeah but from your subjective point of from view... From my point of view, it feels like uh, Ravana suffers... So nothing against Dan Abner. I think he's an amazing author, and I think he's one of the... I put him in my top three of like Warhammer writers, and I think he's really good at world-building, and he does some really interesting characters. I struggle a bit with Ravana because I feel like his disability is used as a narrative device... Um, to contrast against um, his ability to project himself outside of his body. So he can essentially possess his retinue at times. So he will step into their bodies and it's a very useful kind of narrative 
device because he can you know sort of he can experience what they are experiencing in different parts of the planet at the same time so it's a kind of a way of introducing a, a an omniscient narrator into a into a non-omniscient text it's a bit like professor x isn't it like uh, yeah this character can psych- uh, psychically project and and go into other people I I can understand it within the story, but I, I I do struggle with it because I feel like um, the the way in which Ravenna talks about his experience and his disability more often than not in the book that I've read is in contrast with the freedom that he gets from that projection. It's very much um, it's a narrative tool to make a point about um, how free he feels when he's a psyker. Um, He's also in a big box. I think that's quite interesting. Like one of the big things about disability representation. So, um, and we've kind of touched on this a bit already. Is it's all about um, like fixing or eradicating in some way. Um, so whether that's through like the replacement with prosthetics or medical intervention or um, yeah, genetic alteration the stories of disability tend to be stories of that disability being fixed and hidden and being removed from the story. And um, I don't know, I'm probably reading into it too much, but the fact that he's hidden in a big box kind of like says something to me about the way that um, like his disability exists in those stories. He, he's not seen, he, he, he's not present. His mind is present, and it's this thing that is projected out into um, other people. Um, but who he is and what he is as a disabled person is like hidden in like this really like slightly obvious way. If you think about it too much, um, for me, there's a lot of similarities there with like dreadnoughts. So dreadnoughts are similarly people who are um, like entombed in coffins. Basically, we have. Uh, disabled space marines who are injured and are um, hidden away inside these mech suits and again the disability is this thing which needs to be like resolved in some way and in both the cases of dreadnoughts and raveners i feel like part of that resolution is around uh, yeah disentombing in metal like it's a real like it feels like a to me anyway like a really like clear example of um, how those disabled people are understood within this world and what needs to happen to them to make them palatable um, and to function within the society that they're set in. Sure, and I mean in the some of the more modern lore, I, I'm not sure exactly how far it goes back. Um, the I think the first I'm aware of with it is um, the Leviathan dreadnoughts in Heresy, is that essentially those those war suits are too powerful for um the marines so you put them in there like a battery you put the marine in there like a battery so they're a disabled marine who's no you can't fight so you put them in the dreadnought and then they are driven mad over a relatively short amount of time while also fighting um so yeah there's there's also that aspect of it which seems to be um, a little bit true of of, of contempt of dreadnoughts as well, I think, but I admit I didn't. Uh, this has only occurred to me now as you're talking about it, so I I, I couldn't swear blind that that that's more universal. And I think that's like just to kind of like touch on that. Um, I have 
read a fair amount and I've listened to a fair amount, but um, I keep away from the Imperium as much as I possibly can. So they're quite. They're, there might well be um, like gaps in my knowledge around some of the lore and stuff. I've not read every single book that is out there. So if people listening um, can think of other interesting examples, I'd be up for having a conversation about them. Um, I think the other thing to kind of like touch on is this is just my initial thoughts and ideas. I'm much more grounded in critical disability theory than I am anything else. And um, I, I guess it could sound like I'm putting forward a, 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 like a fully formed argument. And I think I've got some like core ideas, um, but um, I'd really be up for conversations with other people, particularly disabled people about um, their views on this and how they understand disability representation in 40k. Because I think it's really important, I think it's really interesting, and I think it says something about... Um, I think it's a space where we can have conversations about like the whole rest of the world. I think it's, it's fundamental in a lot of ways. If you look at... Well, I mean, that's the point of this podcast in a lot of ways, is I was trying to explain it to someone the other day, and it's like, here are... A bunch of nerds about 40k nerds are very rarely like nerds in one field they also have other fields and so this is a place hopefully the podcast is where i can have conversations with someone like yourself where you can talk about a topic which you're nerdy about through a topic which we are both nerdy about and hopefully i can understand more about what you're saying in that and it also hopefully to listeners informs maybe what we think about 40k and i think that that's kind of that's that's the core of why i i want to do these podcasts but also as you're saying this i'm going you know sort of obviously to me and to probably most of the listeners is it will sound like you are almost kind of have a fully formed um theory because we are operating from a much lower level of knowledge um and so yeah i mean it'd be fascinating to hear what other people's reactions are because my reactions are so shallow because I've not, you know, this is, this is me dipping my toe into the world of this theory where I can just kind of hopefully kind of ask a few questions from the outlines to somebody who is much more, much more knowledgeable and, and erudite and has thought about it clearly so much more because it's such an important part of your life and the way you engage with stories and with the setting and that sort of thing. So, and that's, you know, without wanting to be, you know, to say that what I'm doing has tremendous societal value, it's really interesting to me and I'm loving it. And, and you know, that's any, anyone else who has things to say uh, would be more than welcome to come on. I'm hoping to do a reactions episode at some point where people just want to kind of like pick at certain things we've said over the course of episodes and, and get back to us and, and supply, you know, and so that hopefully we can react back and, and learn more. So yes, so I, I certainly you know, would want to say that and that I'm, I, 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 it would be great to hear yeah, anyone talk ideas, about that. But they could be wrong, <laughs> couldn't they? And, and they can always improve and develop. Um... <laughs> well, but also, as you said before, what GW says, well, it's not important because you're telling your story and you're reacting in your own way and that is the interesting thing in a lot of ways um and so you know wrong wrong and right is is to an extent 
um, irrelevant here because it's it's true of the story you're telling. So to bring that back to Nurgle then, I think that's quite a good kind of linking back to um, our starting point. So I think I gave you a bit of a kind of a general overview of the lore of Nurgle, but how does that then fit into these conversations about critical disability theory and disability representation? Um, I think there are some issues with Nurgle. So I think there is a lot of stuff around playing into tropes of deviance um, and um, like horror. I think horror is a big trope that that is seen as something which is part of Nurgle. Um, and I think also within the Death Guard, there are some, what I would consider, dodgy stuff around, like, um, stoicism, and uh, how that relates to what it is to be disabled, um, that I would want to acknowledge. But um, the things that I really like... Um, so, here's, here's a couple of quotes that just kind of, like, set the scene. So... Perception is a strange and tenuous thing. One man's insanity can be another man's genius. Amongst the disease worshippers of Nurgle, it is not uncommon for them to believe that their illnesses make them special, that they have or know something of value that the unafflicted do not have and cannot know. In some ways, they seem similar to some of the more mildly disturbed patients that I treat at the hospice. Those who flaunt their problems, pretending to be pleased or proud of them, when in fact they are repressing a deep self self-loathing or doubt. But the similarity ends with, uh, with their, their similarity ends there. For the servants of Nurgle do not simply pretend to be pleased or proud about their ailments and dysfunctions; they truly are proud of them to the core of their being. As far as I have been able to tell, they do not repress any self-loathing or doubt. They simply and truly adore their afflictions. And this, I believe, is the cruel gift of Nurgle's first blessing. The twisting of one's perceived reality so that the delusion and denial turn into truth and acceptance. And then kind of building on that, in the Lords of Silence, um, Vox, who is one of the Death Guard, um, talking about... Um, Mortarion says, in his religion, damage is not something to be worried about. It is something to be celebrated, cultivated, and if possible, extended. They know they understand, as the corpse spawned cannot, that the attempt to stave off corruption is the greatest source of disappointment. You can't keep it, learn to embrace it, to use it, or consign yourself to a long and wearying defeat. So what we have there is... Um, we don't have disability as something that needs to be eradicated or fixed or removed from the story. We have disabled characters who continue and um, celebrate that difference as something which is uh, valuable and important in itself. I think one of the other things that the existence of Nurgle does is it, um, it destabilises, like it makes um people uncomfortable this like visual representation of um the the abnormal and the different and the um the yeah like deviance i think deviance is a really good thing um it, it especially when we're talking about a universe where we have um uh, a fascist state that kind of runs everything. What's well, that then... first quote is is it very much expressing that that un discomfort 
with this idea that it's not just that they're diseased, it's that they like it. They want it. And, and that's the thing which really, yeah, which really, it's, it's not the disease itself which discomforts the writer. It's the, it's the fact that they are not acknowledging that, that this, is, this is something that shouldn't be. Yeah. It's not something that needs to be eradicated. The Imperium clearly thinks it is. But um, within the context of Nurgle, that's not what happens. Um, I think what that then opens up is a lot of interesting conversations about... um, Or you can have a lot of interesting conversations and tell a lot of interesting stories um, where disabled characters um, exist and can be confrontational and can have agency... Uh, without the requirement that they are subsumed and fixed by the Imperium, um, I think that's why I quite like that's that's the kind of like the core of why I think Nurgle's a nice place to have some of these conversations. As I say, though, I think at the same time there are a lot of um, problematic tropes that it plays into, and um, I think both of those things can be true at the same time, can't they? Especially when we're talking about a universe like a fictional universe with so much content like there's always going to be like multiple truths happening at the same time and i think that's what makes 40k a really nice space to have some of this this stuff um i do think there are like pockets of good representation outside of nurgle um so do you want me to go on to those or do you want to yeah absolutely feel free to comment on the nurgle stuff if you want though i mean this is this is where I think you're sort of like in many ways summing up what we've been talking about. And I, you know, th- this is, th- you know, for, for me, it was an, it was, this is an episode which I'm slightly nervous is not phrased, but it's like I, when, when we first started talking, it's like my only reticence about approaching this subject is that I'd like to do it so that I'm not being a dick. You know, and 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 I'm aware that you know, as you know, a middle-aged white cis guy, it's sort of Warhammer was very much in my wheelhouse, and so me commenting on so many of these things is is something that I'm hesitant to do. Um, so yeah, if I, even though I am talking quite a lot, that's sort of part of the reason why I'm I'm I was slightly reticent about it at at uh, at first because I wanted to. You know, do it justice, and to if I was commenting, not not being a dick about it. <laughs> if that makes sense. Totally, and I think it's. I think this is an important conversation to like touch on in a podcast like this. Like, um, as a hobby, we have got um, a, there was a predominant. It's predominantly cis white men who. Um, and a lot of the gatekeeping that happens around 40k is cis white men feeling uncomfortable about things that don't centre them in the conversation. Um, I think it's a really good place to feel slightly uncomfortable and to want to be sensitive and to not know everything and for us to make mistakes. And I'm sure there are things that I've said along the way that make me sound like an absolute dick. <laughs> I think that's a really, like... I think this is difficult and complex and um, just two people having part of a much bigger conversation that was being formed by loads of different people's experiences. Um, And 
hopefully can be understood as such. Like it's not this is not the the perfect final analysis of what's going on in relation to disability in 40k. It is a like a, a two-way conversation that acknowledges our different experiences and also the different experiences of all the people that like make up the hobby really. Yeah, which is the 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 wonderful thing about a setting is that it allows you to to put your own experiences into it and so this is this is why for me the gatekeeping and stuff like that is so weird because it's like you've got a narrative I've had countless narratives which send to me but when you know when I play somebody who has a different experience when I meet somebody who has a different experience and they're bringing it to the hobby it's like that makes it better I, I can't think of an ex, a, a time when somebody bringing a different lived experience into their hobby and you know, engaging them with it hasn't made me feel more positive about the hobby. Um, so yes, let's go. The examples that I think are good. Um, so I think Nurgle's an interesting space to have conversations. And I think there are parts of Nurgle, parts of Nurgle lore, which are really interesting. So, like, the destabilising valorization of deviance as a way to unsettle ableism. If I was going to say it in a really wordy but short way, that would be how I would describe it. Yeah, I didn't yeah. understand that. So, like, um, making the non-disabled world feel uncomfortable and less natural by the existence of... Um, disabled characters that aren't uh, subsumed or fixed or eradicated i think that's that's an interesting space and i think that's why i quite like nurgle as a narrative tool um i think some of the writing around nurgle can be a little bit dodge um so uh, dark imperium in particular so there's a lot of nurgle in the dark imperium series and they're really good books but i do think how they handle nurgle could could be better if I'm totally honest. Um, I think sure. the the kind of like the standout representation for me, if we're talking about the narrative stuff, so rather than what we can construct as like participants, um, normally comes from Mike Brooks. Mike Brooks is sorry, Mike Brooks is a disabled person themselves, um, and they have a couple of characters that I just think are just wonderful examples of disability representation. So the first one is Chetta Brabantis, who is um, the like a senior navigator in the Brabantis navigator family. Um, it's a really good story, Rites of Passage, um, which is the, the novel that she's in. Um, and she walks using a, a walking stick um, and I just wanted to read this little quote because I think it kind of like captures some really the stuff that I really like seeing so one of them looked up at the tap tap tapping of Chetta's steel shod cane on the deck hi lady the adept buzzed in greeting through the voice synth that had replaced their vocal cords it was an alteration made by cho choice most likely rather than necessity but Chetta did not regard the Adeptus Mechanicus habit of replacing their body parts with machines with the same distrust or disgust many humans did. There were many days when she would have given her right hand for artificial hips, knees and ankles, but for the moment she was still stubbornly determined to stick with her natural body, despite her regular disagreements with it. 
besides Chetta knew well what it was like to be regarded as a disgusting aberration. Navigators might be essential to the functioning of the Imperium, but that didn't prevent the ill-informed and overly superstitious from regarding her and her kin as heretical mutants, rather than the result of several centuries of finely guarded gene law. So that brought to mind to me um, a, a, like a really foundational um, text in critical disability theory by a guy called Rob Michalko. And um, he um, talked about his experience as a blind person navigating a city with his um, guide dog and how um, his relationship with his dog and how they navigate through a city opens up like interesting and distinct ways of viewing and understanding the world that aren't accessible to um, people who are sighted and um, that was one of the like that's a really fundamental thing within critical disability theory if what we're doing is critically engaging with this idea of normal um, and what counts as valuable we're also having conversations about um, like the value of seeing the world in different ways and engaging with the world in different ways and the the privileged access to the world that um, being marginalized allows people to have um, and I think that is kind of captured just really nicely in that quote that Chetta, through her um, own experience of her body and her experience as a navigator, has, I think that's one of the most insightful, like, empathising little passages about the Adeptus Mechanicus that I've kind of read throughout the whole of 40k. I think the other thing that I really like about that, compared to Ravana or even the Death Guard, is... Um, like the existence of pain, like one of the things that quite happen that happens quite a lot when um, disability is used, is because it's always used in a reductive way to make a really clear point. Um, there's not much nuance and there's not much subtlety and there's not much complexity in what that representation looks like and how that disability is understood. It's always there to do a thing, and because of that pain doesn't become part of the conversation because as soon as you start to talk about pain and what somebody experiences in their body and what that's like um, it makes it harder to make a really simple point so if your point is um, uh, if your point is to do with like blindness so um, I was reading uh, the first heretic recently and um, so about the word bearers and there's the What's that blind? There's a blind. It's called like Cyrene, um, the yeah, the human who sees um, the destruction of the the perfect city. I think they refer to it as. Um, there, the because of, because of very specific points being made about like memory and knowledge, um, how she relates to her sight is is never explored in any kind of like genuine and human way. Um, whereas Chetta there is talking about like the discomfort that her body causes her, and that is part of um, being disabled. Like I think sometimes when we are critically engaging with ideas of ableism, which need to be critically engaged with, it's easy for um, non-disabled people to miss uh, like how do you 
talk about the normative value of disability while also acknowledging pain. And I think that paragraph does it quite nicely. Like, um, it it's clear about how she exists in her body and what that means, but also like how that allows her to have insight into the world around her. I think one of the other things just to talk about rites of passage in general is um, it's not her, her kind of her using her walking stick pops up here and there, but it's not this narrative. To, it's not like um, it's not the Chekhov's gun. It's not like this thing that the whole story is based around, and it's not something that gets resolved by the story. Um, and just when you kind of read something like that, you can kind of see what good representation can look like. I think the Death Guard's probably more fun and has more space for us to have complex and nuanced conversations. But if you're looking for examples of just like good, like insightful disability representation, that's a great one. The other one is also Mike Brooks, um, who... Um, because like in the 40k universe, the other thing that we have is we have abhumans, don't we? So we have Ogrins, we have Rattlings, um, we have Votan. Um, we have like all these like categories of human that aren't counted as like proper human in, in that kind of like sense. Um, and in his book, um, Gazgul Thraka, which is like the story of Gazgul Thraka, the, the orc, the big orc, um, there is uh, Ogryn Saika, and um, I just found the writing around that, again, a really like insightful and different way to think about, like, how do you have a nuanced and complex character that relates to some of these ideas? Because if you look at Ogryns in general, though people like them, a lot of the like, writing and framing of Ogryns is, um, like, these ideas of big and stupid and muscly and violent and there's a whole but also childishly loyal it's almost like that kind of um master blaster in in mad max kind of thing exactly yeah um simple simple kind of tools rather than fully formed yeah and, and like that is that is uh the way in which society for many years has talked about and understood what it is to be learning disabled like there is a real clear link there between how Ogrins are talked about and how learning disabled people tend to be talked about and thought about. Like big, loyal, um, prone to violence, um, but not people who have agency or subtlety or nuance or complexity, um, which is simply not the case. Um, so this is a quote from um, folks Folks, Folks, I always say Folks, um, Folks, who is the uh, Inquisitor who is interviewing um, Makari, who is uh, the Gretchen who hangs around with Gazgul. And this is about her Ogryn, who is uh, called Cassia, who is a psyker. Naturally, the Imperial Truth held that Ogryns were stupid, just like it said Gretchen were weak. They were gigantic, hardy abhumans whose bodies had grown into fortresses against the harsh worlds their ancestors had marooned them on. And, as common wisdom had it, this fortitude came at the expense of their wits. Most thought them incapable of three-syllable words, or counting beyond their share of bolt-shell-thick digits, and without a doubt the truth insisted that Ogrins could never ever muster the cerebral 
sophistication to manifest psychic talents. Folks was willing to concede this last insistence might well have been the case, at least until recently, but these were strange days, and while the guardians of the imperial dogma might not have been willing to change their mind on such matters, there was no doubt that across the countless worlds in their sway, minds were changing nonetheless, and thus Cassia. So, just like the existence of um, a psyker who is an Ogryn, in itself unpicks and destabilizes that big conversation which is going like how how Ogryns are understood and talked about and that paragraph that like little explanation um relates that to um really explicitly relates that to how the imperium understands and views those ad humans so ab humans um and because of the way that Mike writes um it yeah, it just creates this space where there's like a bit of like subtlety and interest and it's not reductive in the way that the rest of the universe seems to be. Um, so yeah, so if I was going to say one thing, I would say go and read those books. Um, I guess the final little thing to like close on is I think for these conversations to happen and for them to be valuable and for um, it to be something that was more explicit... I would want more disabled creators um, being supported to do their work. Um, so we can see in those examples from Mike Brooks that like having a bit of insight and um, like personal experience can open up some really interesting and like nuanced ways of engaging with the subject. Um, I feel uncomfortable. I would feel uncomfortable if an organisation like um, GW um started to critically engage with some of these ideas and these conversations that we're having um and was making money off those things and was selling products based on this kind of um disability representation especially if it was like if it critically engaged with what it was actually doing uh, without disabled people being front and center of that and having their voices heard um because otherwise it is um, so there's a phrase cripping up which is where uh, non-disabled actors play disabled characters and often win lots of awards and it would be a similar kind of thing like um, that doesn't mean this conversation isn't for us all to have but if an organization is making money off this then I think disabled people need to be front and center in those conversations yeah for sure um and yes absolutely it's it's one of those things where gw providing a space to for everyone to engage in is one thing but their actual you know produced output like the novels and so on is is a slightly different thing and i understand exactly why you're making that point and like i think um it needs to be a little bit more than a space because it needs to be a space that is supported and protected and um it's not just a kind of i think gw could be doing more i think they do some but i think they could be doing more to tackle the more toxic parts of our community and um yeah i think how you make those spaces accessible and not feel like you're going to be barraged by a load of nonsense on the internet is is like 
it's more active than just a space, isn't it? Yes, like, they need to a curated space. Um, and just to finish out with one of the things which um, I'm, I'm involved in um, very very likely and tangentially in the organisation of our local club. And one of the things which they have um, introduced um, um, is been a lo-fi Tuesdays, which has been a night specifically uh, marketed and targeted to provide a space for neurodivergent people who might, or people with social anxieties or so on, to provide a quieter space. Because while our club nights are, you know, you enter and there's, lots of people and there's lots of sound and there's lots of laughter which you know, you want i mean that's that's a lot of those are very positive things to to be happening some somebody within the club um is recognizing that a space needs to be created and curated for um people who don't who find that perhaps less helpful and less positive to be in and, and find it more problematic and that's obviously only a very small step. It's uh, you know, kind of one of those things, but it, you know, I, I I wouldn't have thought of it myself because for me, going in and seeing that, you know, seeing the laughter and the sights is a is a positive thing, and so I wouldn't necessarily have thought that actually going in and having a quiet, calm environment would be necessary. So it's it's been wonderful to see, and that's you know, it's been very successful. So I'm just looking forward to. So seeing more things like that and more spaces created um, for to bring more people in to have that wonderfully positive experience that we can get from the hobby. So, I mean, I, I don't want to have the closing remarks myself because this, as everybody can hear, is you've put a phenomenal amount of work into this. Um, you know, you've, you've, you've forwarded me documents. I've read a few things online, but then gone, there's just a... A massive amount and um, as I was saying to Liam at the beginning is um, I had COVID at the beginning of uh, March and since then my life has been somewhat tricky in terms of concentration spans and so on and so I've been struggling to keep up and it was really only because my, uh, Liam has done so much work that I felt okay with going ahead with this um, with this episode so huge thanks for me and I wanted to leave the um, the closing words to Liam. Thank you for having me. I think this is a, a really valuable um, and important podcast. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you over the last few months and to have some of these conversations. I'm still figuring out a lot of this myself. And um, there's just so much of it to engage with and think about. Um, so it's been, I've found it really positive to have something to help me a focus to think okay so i'm going to be talking about this so i at least need to have like thought it through a little bit <laughs> and like for me what that then means is days and days and days and days and days of obsessively thinking about something until we get to this point where i talk for hours and hours and i hope people have found this interesting and i hope it's coherent and if there are things that i have um said that are not particularly clear or i've used too much jargon send me an email um we can make sure that my contact details are there feel free to get in contact with me on social media um so instagram um i am on twitter but like i never know how to use it like <laughs> i feel like an old person <laughs> um i quite like tiktok but um yeah i'm not i'm not fully 
um, up to speed with Twitter. Um, but yeah, and I and I can also like share other bits of information if that would be useful. There's so much to like unpack and to like think about because what we're talking about is um, fundamentally what it means to be a human. That's what disability studies ends up talking about more than anything else. Um, so having disability as a starting point for us to then have conversations about um, what 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 we are as humans, and I think that's a really important conversation, and I think everyone's got something that's really valuable to contribute towards that. Um, so, um, yeah, thank you for having me. I, I hope it's been interesting. It's been amazing, and thank you so much for coming on. Um, just to add to the contacts, as always, uh, I am 40 Curious on Instagram. Um, there's a page on Facebook and on Twitter. So if you did want to get in touch with um, Liam about any of these things or indeed with um, with me at the podcast, then you can use those um, those normal channels. And like I said right at the beginning, this was a special episode for me because it's the first one where somebody approached me from out of the ether and um, and manifested themselves into my computer and suggested this amazing topic to talk about. Um, so until the next time, uh, thank you so much for coming on and hopefully you've all enjoyed this topic. Um.